Welcome to the Get Your Writing Done podcast. I'm Trevor Thrall, author of the 12-week year for writers. Are you sitting on a work in progress that has been on your desk for a long time? Do you find yourself starting new writing projects before you finish the current project? We all have trouble finishing our writing sometimes. Writing is hard, and it's a lot easier to start things than to finish them. But there are a host of challenges specific to finishing a piece of writing. Today we're going to talk about some of the most common finishing struggles, why they occur, and what you can do about them. All right, folks, today's episode is all about finishing, getting that writing finished. I've been having conversations with quite a few people over the last few weeks, and the preoccupation has been finishing things that have been lying around a while, maybe months, maybe years. And I think it's that time of year. You know, we, get, we go back to school, fall, we're starting to you know, lean into, I guess, you know, the indoor activities more. Uh, and, and I think a lot of us look back at our desks and uh, at our computers and say, okay, it's time, I'm, I had fun over the summer, now it's time to get some stuff done. That's been that's been lying around waiting for me, and and if you're like me, um, you've got more than a few things in the digital back room that have never seen the light of day. Uh, maybe there's some things in there that you really would like to finish, and so today I just want to talk about you know number one, why is it so hard to finish things sometimes, and then number two, share some strategies about what might help in certain cases to help you just get across that finish line. You know, the answers are gonna be different for all of us. You know, there are probably a million reasons why we don't finish things. I do think though that you can kind of identify some of the major culprits, at least in my experience, um, you know, watching a lot of people write, writing a lot myself, finishing, not finishing things. Um, I, I've done a little thinking, so I, I have some thoughts about what I think some of the most common uh, culprits are. And then for each of those things, I think there are some fairly straightforward, you know, approaches one might take. Um, maybe a lot, several of these stacked together uh, to make a real formula for helping you you finish. So, so let's let's dig in. All right. And so, the first the first one I want to tackle right off is one that I think a lot of creative folks um, struggle with, and that is getting distracted by a new idea or a new project when you're still in the middle or even maybe at the, nearing the end of an older project. Um, this happens to creative people all the time, um, you know, and there's a couple of things here. I mean, the, the, the first sort of root cause of this is, is like just math. It's easy to start things. It's easy to start things. All you have to do is have an idea and write a few lines down on a, on a piece of paper, jot it on a post-it, uh, open a document, type a few lines, give it a title, and all of a sudden it's in your brain as an idea. And you might your juices are flowing, you're super excited about it. It's easy to start things. But of course, just by definition, the starting part is about this big. Finishing is all the rest. So just like by simple economics, I guess it would be, right? Things that are cheap, there are lots of, we buy plenty of. New ideas are cheap, so we buy a lot of them. Finished projects are expensive, so we buy fewer of them. So like just by the math, it's, it's clear that humans are always gonna start more things than they finish. 
Um, you know, my wife will tell you about many of my household projects, for example. I'm gonna paint the bathroom. I'm gonna, you know, replant grass in the backyard. Well, <laughs> let's just say I start a lot of those things. I don't, I don't finish all of them. And the reason is very simple. The ideas are great. No one complains that the idea is a bad idea, but finishing it, it all of a sudden takes a lot more work than we were counting on, right? So, so the first, the first, you know, most obvious reason that we don't finish things is we start too many things, right? You, you couldn't possibly do all the work um, that you can start in your brain. So, you know, that's sort of a simple, a simple problem. Although I think, I think it's actually a devious problem for creative types uh, because we have a lot of ideas. And so we are constantly bombarded by uh, new ideas, new shiny ideas. And, and the real problem, of course, is that a new shiny idea is never newer and shinier seeming than when you're in the middle of something that feels like work. If you're finding yourself stuck in a project, if you are two thirds of the way done with a long project, if you are nearing the end of a project that you know, maybe you loved at the beginning, but you've kind of stomped all the interestingness out of by the end, you know, your, your vulnerability at that point to, to something new is going to be very high. And, I, you know, I have this problem all, all the time because the funnest parts of, of projects for me, and I think for almost everyone, is that, is that early phase when you're in love with the idea for whatever it might be, a novel, a book, a character, a research paper, whatever it might be, you know, when you first think of it, you're like, no one else has ever had a smart idea. This is the best thing ever. This has to happen right away. Um, and the problem is that idea could in fact have been the greatest and most interesting thing ever the day you started the project. But for me, you know, most of my projects, like, geez, even journal articles, which are, you know, relatively short, maybe they're 10,000 words, um, this can take you six months to do, a year, a year and a half when you add all the revisions and reviews from journals and stuff like that. That's no, that's easy. Uh, it could take a year and a half. By the end of that process, I don't think there's one interesting thing about that project. I am very susceptible at that point to having other ideas draw me away like sirens. And so, that, that is a very big problem. And, and, and so, you know, it, it, I think that kind of getting bored of things when the work kind of becomes obvious and mounts, that's a problem for everyone. But I really do think that for creative folks, the problem is extra. Um, and so I think uh, there's a few things that if this is a particular problem for you that you might consider. Um, and I've had to do these things personally, so I'm, I'm speaking from experience here. So the first thing is you need to focus. <laughs> and, and that's hard, easier said than done. Um, but when you're trying to finish something in particular, right, um, there's really no alternative in my book other than making a plan, in my case, it will be a 12-week plan, that has exactly one writing project in it. Right? And that's whatever this project is that you're trying to finish. And if that's your, your you know, most important work in progress, right? this is the thing you should be finishing. I don't know what that is in your world, but you have one, and that's the one that you should finish before you work on anything else. It just, I, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book about managing multiple projects. Don't do it if you don't have to. Right? That is a, it's a bad place to be for most writers, especially if you're in a situation where there's something direly urgent that needs to be finished ahead of 
everything else, right? For whatever reason. So, so the first thing I suggest is a focused plan with exactly one project. Um, the second thing though, right? And, and here's the thing is that I will get pushback from some people, uh, including my own students, believe it or not, which I find amazingly cheeky, but I'll get pushback because people will ask me, what should I do if I have a great idea in the middle of my 12 week plan? And, and in particular, I have, I have PhD students who will be mid dissertation, right? And if you wanted the very definition of most important project, uh, that's it. There is no other most important project in your life, man. That's the thing you gotta finish. In my you know, firm belief, PhD students have no business working on anything else. And so, I, but I will repeatedly have them come to me and tell me that they submitted a conference paper proposal on an entirely different topic. I wanna blow my hair out. I want to scream at them through email. Now, sometimes I do, no, I don't scream. I'm not that kind of person, but I remonstrate sternly with these folks. And I say, what the heck are you doing? What are you, you're, you're, you're diffusing your effort just at the critical juncture. But I know exactly why that is. Because they're bored. It's a grind. They're halfway through pushing a boulder up a mountain and they want a break. So what do they do? They start more work. I mean, let's be real. Logically, that makes zero sense, right? You're gonna add to your pile of overall work in order to feel like you're having a break from your work. But, but right, but, but you get what the person is trying to do. They're trying to take a break from the big scary one by paying attention to a new, more interesting, less intimidating one. I get it, I've done it, I know the feeling, but it's a bad idea. So the, the first trick is to keep yourself focused, and the best way to focus yourself is by creating a plan that has exactly one project in it at a time. And so I, I believe that is, without question, step number one for almost everyone. Step two, though, right? And, and this is following on this notion that I, I always get pushback, right? The other reason I get pushback from creative people is because they believe that if they do not get busy on a new epiphany, a new creative epiphany, that they will lose it. And that in disobeying the muse, in not listening to the muse, they will miss a phenomenal opportunity to create something magical, something great. And I say to that, I think you're wrong. Uh, most of the time, almost all the time, uh, you can do that project later. Um, and and you know, I've, I've talked about this before, I've talked about it in the book a little bit, but, but you know, yes, sure, every time you do have a new opportunity come through your door, come through the email at you, um, you that isn't part of your current plan, your current 12-week plan, uh, or whatever, however you do your scheduling, right, you need to do a little triage and you need to ask yourself, is this so good, so important, so immediately the next thing I have to do that I should stop what I've actually planned to do for the next several weeks or months? Um, is it that important? I would say that almost always the answer to that is no, especially if it's an idea you came up with and you're, and you're mid-project and you are 
if the description I just gave seems to fit you, right? You're getting a little bored. You're feeling a little ground down. Um, you're you don't you don't have the magic and the creative juices aren't flowing as fast as they were at the beginning of this project. You're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to epiphanies, uh, if that's a phrase I can coin. Uh, you are vulnerable to epiphanies, real or imagined, and and so it's probably not an epiphany that is going to make your life 100% better. It's probably just your brain trying to get a break. Uh, but you know what? It is possible. Certainly, it is possible that you had an epiphany that's just so good that you maybe need to drop something. That's fine. But I'm going to ask you to press against that a lot before, you know, make make the idea prove itself to you. Um, so, but, but here's the thing. I don't want you to lose all your epiphanies and all your great ideas because you are a creative person. You are having good ideas all the time. The problem is you can't do them all all the time, right? If you want to be a productive person, you have to execute one thing at a time. Pretty much that's, I mean, I can only type on one paper at a time. Even if I think I'm working on a bunch of things at once, I'm actually doing one thing at a time very quickly in serial fashion. Right? So you can only work on one thing at a time. So the question then becomes, what do I do with all these ideas that bombard me, especially when I'm vulnerable to epiphanies? Right? And I have an answer for that. And the, an uh, the answer is the idea garden. And uh, is it a great name? Uh, no, not. I don't know. You decide. Give me a better one. Um, some people on the internet, uh, for example, if you follow Tiago Forte, um, he calls it a second brain. Uh, some people in, in Germany, the preferred phrase is a Zettelkasten, uh, which is kind of the word for that little library card catalog, those old school file cabinet drawers. Uh, basically, what, what it means is you have a system for keeping track of notes and ideas and all that other sort of stuff. I prefer Idea Garden because um, what I specifically want you to do is when you get new ideas, I want you to Take a minute during the day at some opportune moment uh, when you have this epiphany or soon, soon thereafter, so you don't, so don't lose the magic of it. And I want you to document as much as there is to document in a brief sort of a way. Um, you know, don't write the whole thing, that's the point, right? So maybe you have a great idea for a title of a book or, or an article. Maybe you have a phenomenal idea for a character, a scene, some dialogue, whatever it is. In my case, it would be I have an idea for a piece of research um, and I, you know, I might, I might have things that are really just a title and, and maybe a hook. I have, in fact, some ideas that are kind of what I call article stubs. I mean, I actually, because these things all sort of look similar journal articles, you know, you kind of already know what the format's going to be, you know, what the organization outline's going to be. And, and if I have a, a sort of enough of a fully baked notion in my head, I, I can actually sit down and write a a summary introduction that kind of sets the context for the paper, ex explains what it's going to be about, why it matters, what the methods I'm going to use look like, what the data set might look like. Uh, and, you know, in brief, now this is, you know, a little, you know, premature because I'm going to rewrite that introduction actually at the end uh, once I'm finished with the project. But but what I do is I, I actually test where I'm at with the thing by seeing how much of that introduction I can write. And then I'll put some notes on the page about other parts of the paper and what I think I know about them right now and then I'll put it in my idea garden folder and I checked I checked just today and I have 42 potential projects sitting in my idea garden and as the name suggests what happens in your idea garden is that you plant little baby plants little seedlings 
um, and you give them some compost, you throw them some additional nutrients over time in the form of, as you roll through life, you'll have another idea to toss on the pile for a character or a scene or a book, but you're not ready to write it right now. You're in the middle of something. So what do you do? You go into your idea garden, you find the project and you dump some of that nutrient on it and you let it do its thing. Then when you're done with your current project, you have this wonderful idea garden, you stroll through and you figure out what's ripe, what's ready to harvest or what with a little more effort could be the next great thing that you do. And the benefit of the idea garden is, you know, sort of many fold, right? But what I, what I want to focus on right now is the fact that it helps you stay focused because you're not worried anymore that you're going to lose these ideas. I, I remember when I was young working on my dissertation, I would be panicked um, about missing out on ideas that I had, like say in the middle of a dog walk or <laughs> so I, I was always carrying a notebook with me. Um, what I, I did eventually learn that I, um, I was never, I never really lost any really good idea. Um, I, I forgot plenty of not very good ideas, but anything that was really good, I would remember at some point later. Um, but keeping a notebook is great. That's another great way, or your phone, you know, dictate into it, whatever it is. But the best part of the idea garden is that you no longer have the open loop in your head thinking about that project, competing with your ability to do the new project. But you, so you don't have to worry about it taking up brain space, nor do you have to worry about it you know, going away and, and you losing that possibility. So uh, the idea garden for me is, is critical for all writers, and I'm sure everyone has some version of this, but, but I think having it as a deliberate practice, something that you talk to yourself as if it is in fact a tool for keeping you focused, because this is where I keep all my ideas before they grow up enough for me to execute on them. I think, I think that's a really useful practice. And I'm going to come back to the idea garden stuff in, in later podcasts and other stuff to talk more about it, um, because I think it's a very useful practice. And there are some best practices for how to kind of, um, you know, build up an idea garden, especially depending on what kind of writer you are, uh, in ways that can really sort of multiply your ability to, to execute relatively quickly on, on new ideas that you have. So idea garden, I think is is a really good way uh, to help keep you to help keep you focused. Okay, so the the second challenge then um, is burnout. Um, you know, how many times in the middle of a project or maybe near the end of a project have you sort of gone, oh man, I don't think I can I don't think I can do this anymore. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned in, in the, the book, The 12-Week Year for Writers, I, I hit, I, I mean, this is one of the best projects I ever worked on. I was so excited about it the whole time. And even so, about, let's see, seven, seven months in, seven months in, I hit a wall. And I had a week where I just didn't do any writing, just none on this project. I was, I was done. And, and, you know, the reason was... Um, one of several reasons that I think uh, produced burnout, and that was I was I was busy, um, and and I had a, a, a lot going on. Not writing per se so much, although I did have some writing, other writing projects going on, but I just had a lot of other stuff going on. And it was the pandemic, which I know burdened a lot of us with extra mental, um, you know, effort. Uh, just being alive during this crazy time has been harder than usual. Um, but I was busy. I was asking a lot of my body and my brain, and I hit a point where I was just like, "Wow, that was that was too much," right? Um, in general, though, having too many writing projects is a very good cause of burnout. 
Uh, I see this all the time because the world I live in and the university, typically professors who feel you know compelled to publish a lot, even after they get tenure, um, there are it's kind of the culture. Uh, you're you're kind of professionally encouraged to bite off more than you can really comfortably chew, and so. I think it's fair to say most professors that I know have a few too many writing projects going on. And, and if you poke any of them um, too many times, you'll hear them complain about at least one or two projects that they just haven't got anywhere on because too many, right? And, 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 and one of the most interesting things I have learned, and this is fascinating to me to learn, was that, um, now you, you may have heard of this boondoggle called the sabbatical uh, every seven years or so, depending on you know, where you teach. Um, you get to go on a sabbatical, and, and typically uh, professors will take their first sabbatical after they get tenure. Uh, so you'll either get a semester or maybe the whole year off, depending on the situation. And typically what professors try to do, or say they're going to do, uh, with their sabbatical is finish a book, or you know, start a new book, or you know, ambitious, ambitious writing projects usually. And I had the same. I had the same. I got tenure. I was like so pumped. And with all the energy I had from getting tenure, I, I, you know, had an ambitious plan for the semester that I was going to get off. I got nothing done. Absolutely zero. I, I finished revising one thing, you know, making edits that, you know, to a paper that was already done. And I did exactly none of what else I thought I was going to get done that semester. And the reason was very simple. I had spent six years getting tenure burning the candle on all three sides and I was I was wiped and I thought it was just me and I came to this new university and I watched a younger colleague who I admire greatly extremely productive person he got tenure he went on a sabbatical hoping to finish his second book and about halfway through his sabbatical I was chatting with him and he said Trevor I don't know what's wrong I just I I got nothing and I was like, man, let me tell you a story. And he's like, what? And I was like, I think this is just what happens, man. I think, look what you've just been doing. Um, you know, and in his case, it wasn't just the tenure part, but it was like getting his academic job had also involved a bunch of publishing and a lot of hard work. I mean, you know, before that, it's your PhD. I mean, it's, it's a long mountain climb and it's exhausting, right? And we all have our mountain. Whatever the mountain is for you, I know you have it. And in the middle of various lengthy projects especially, or long-term projects. If you have a newsletter, I mean, it gets to be a grind, right? And, and you can burn out. So having too much to do, having too many other things to do, like non-writing, right? Doesn't leave you enough in the tank to, to get your writing done. I mean, I know a lot of you out there have kids, a lot of you have young kids, and you know, raise your hand if you have trouble being productive when you're raising little kids, man. Absolutely, I know that is one of the hardest things. Uh, you know. We had three who at one point were all under five years of age at the same time. So that was, there was really very little getting done when they were awake <laughs> back in those years. So the special challenges of parenting and writing, I'm, I'm all over that, that problem, right? So there are, there are mountains everywhere. We're busy. We only have so much energy. When we load up our plate with tons of writing projects, we can burn out. Um, and another piece of this, I think, that's very common for a lot of uh, creators, a lot of writers, is setting too ambitious a pace. On top of all that other stuff, we want to move fast. We have ambitious goals, and they require us to do ambitious amounts of writing. Um, you want to have a podcast every week. You want to write a book every year. You want to write a trilogy in a year. You want to do whatever it is that you have 
you have a newsletter, you want to write a two times a week newsletter. Um, you know, people come up with crazy great ideas, but they take a lot of execution on a consistent basis over a long period of time. You know, that's kind of a recipe for, for burnout, isn't it? So I think, you know, what do we do about, about burnout? And I think, you know, one of the things I talked about in, in the book, in the managing multiple projects chapter was knowing what your speed limit is. Um, you know, I think different productivity gurus will have different metaphors for this. You know, how big is your plate? Uh, what's your carrying capacity? What's your bandwidth? Uh, whatever metaphor you like. But I, I just sort of say, look, there's every person has how fast they can go. Everyone has a speed limit. Um, you know, I talk about mine in the book. I, I, during the school year, I have a pretty slow speed limit. I, I can't get that much done. I'm busy with all sorts of stuff. And I used to try to plan too much and I used to always be disappointed. Um, but now I know right about what my speed limit is. And so I plan accordingly. And so, um, I, you know, does it mean I'm not as fast as I'd like to be? Absolutely, but I don't burn out during the year the way I used to. I, I can now sustain my pace more often. <laughs> I did burn out on this book, but right in general, in general, I know what my pace is. I obey it. And when I obey it, I don't burn out so much. I don't think you can avoid burnout as a human in general. Like I think that's just a thing that happens to us. Then we need to recharge. So planning and vacations is another good strategy, right? We need to rest. We need to recuperate. You can't work 24 seven. Uh, I talked about this, uh, very first podcast episode and sort of talking about making time for your writing. Um, you need breaks, man. You, you can't be writing all the time. It's, it's too hard. Um, so I think the first thing is to know what your speed limits are. How fast can you work? Don't plan to work faster than that. Uh, you might be able to do it for a short time. Can't do it for a long time. The second thing, and this goes to you folks, especially who are on a clock to get something done or you, you desperately need in your own brain to get something done in the near future, um, you know, I, I face graduate students who have dissertation clocks. Um, there's only so many years that the school will give them to finish. Many of them push right up to that limit and then it's do or die. And so they have an urgent need to finish. And what I tell all of these kids is they start to approach that time frame. I say, look, it's time to start dropping everything else that you do. You now need to clear the decks and make much more time for your writing and load yourself you know, and offload all the extra stuff that's making it hard for you to have enough energy to write. You know, even if you didn't write more hours a day, but if you lower the load of other things that you're doing so that you have more peace in your brain, your brain can be fresher every day, uh, that's really critical. And, you know, there's a reason so many writers will mention in their, you know, things how they borrowed the house somewhere or they, you know, thanks to the, you know, folks because I left for a while or whatever, you know, I mean, people sometimes need to go into hiding to finish things that are that are really tough and need long periods of uninterrupted time. And so, you know, offloading what you can, saying no to projects, saying no to other people, sometimes you have to do that. And, you know, as I've talked about before, you know, you often need to make compromises and promises to others to, to make this possible. It's not always easy to do this, of course, because you're embedded in a social network. You have responsibilities. You can't just say, oh, kids, you're making your own lunch, um, you know, from now on, even though they're five years old or something. Um, but hey, if your kids are in junior high or high school, you can tell them to make their own lunch. You know, dad's busy, mom's busy. I got stuff to do, man. It's important to me to have a life and a, you know, career too. So, I, you know, we're going to have to share the load, right? So, You'll, you'll find a way to offload unnecessary obligations and, and requirements when you need to. Um, and then I think a really important last thing, and it's, it's a little more vague, but um, you know, 
see, see my comments about the vision thing in the previous podcast, but it's really important that you're working in a way that's aligned with your vision for where you want to go. The, the best recipe to me for burnout is working at a job you hate. Uh, working on a writing project you don't love is a really good recipe for burnout because writing is so hard. You have to give it so much. And if you're not getting much out of it, um, that can be really hard. So, you know, writing for hire can be difficult because it's not your words. It's not your passion. It's not anything of interest to you. It's just money. And man, that's hard to do. And you know what? If, if you love writing other people's words for other people, now that is your thing. That's great. For me, I don't love it. Right? I used to write business plans on the side as a side hustle back during the dot-com era. And I loved, for a while, I loved writing business plans. I kind of just dug the wonky business plan aspect of it. But, but on some of those things, man, it would just be really boring because, you know, it's not my company. I'm not doing it. And, you know, too much of that, you know, I'm just like, nah, I, I'm done with that. So I, I quit doing that because it wasn't, it wasn't really aligned with what I wanted to spend my time writing. And so, you know, you're going to burn out easier if you're working on the wrong stuff. And, you know, again, I, I see this all the time. A lot of people think they want to get a PhD, but when it boils down to it, writing a dissertation is just not their cuppa. And so they probably shouldn't do it. It makes them miserable. Um, they shouldn't do it. So, so making sure that you're working on the stuff that's what you want to write, that's one of the other secret ingredients to avoid, to avoid burnout, I think. Okay, um, third challenge. Third challenge is thinking your work sucks. Uh, or no, being afraid that your work isn't good enough, isn't any good, right? We're, we all suffer from this one. And, you know, there are so many potential causes. Um, the first is that it does stink. Um, you know, sometimes that happens. Um, I'll, you know, quick story. I'm one of my <laughs> I was already a tenured professor when this happened to me. So just to let you know this happens to everyone. Um, I, I wrote a paper many years ago um, about celebrities in politics. It was a blast to write. Um, and then I thought a few years later, I thought, you know what, I'll, I'm going to write a sequel. I have a, I have kind of a neat idea for an expansion of this. Uh, we'll use social media for data and all this other stuff. And I said, okay, yeah. So I did it. I, it took me about nine months probably to write this paper. I'm mostly working on my own and, uh, which is, uh, mm, one of the interesting, uh, problems probably. Um, and when I got it done, I was like, okay, I'm not sure if it's quite ready to submit to a journal. So I'm going to share it with my, uh, former student, a uh, uh, fellow I trusted a lot, respected a lot. So I sent it to him and, you know, expected him to have some good ideas, some constructive criticism and so on. And he, and he sent it back to me and he said, uh, Trevor, I don't know, this isn't really like as good as your usual stuff. And I don't, you know, and he said a few things and then sort of by the end of it, he's like, it's just not good. <laughs> I was so horrified because <laughs> here I was, I spent all this time on this and I thought it was clever and I thought it was, you know, awesome. Um, but, it, it, but I think something was niggling in the back of my mind, which is why I sent it to him and I didn't submit it to the journal. And, and I, I realized, you know what? Sometimes you have to listen to those little voices because, you know, sometimes your stuff is not ready for prime time. It wasn't ready for prime time, uh, period. Uh, it wasn't even close. And in fact, it was unfixable as it turned out. And, you know, it doesn't happen too often, but you know, every once in a while, especially with like research where you sort of hit it or miss it, um, sometimes you miss and you're like, okay, I'll try again. I've learned some stuff. I'm going to move on to the next one. But, but far more often, right? Far more often, it's not that your work is not good. The problem is that you don't feel good about your work, right? And I think, you know, there are so many reasons for that. 
One is certainly that you can be scarred by previous experiences of rejection, of criticism, uh, and stuff like that. And, you know, again, every writer, every writer has those battle scars. We all get rejections. Most of us in the academic world have a stack of rejections far higher than our stack of acceptances throughout our whole career. I mean, cumulatively, it doesn't matter how good you are, you'll end up with way more rejections than you have acceptances. It's, it's powerfully, it doesn't, it's not fun, but that's just the way of it. Um, so, you know, and I do know people who have been scarred so much by that, that they, they have kind of become paralyzed um, about sharing their work. And, and that's a shame because there's nothing wrong with their work. It's just normal that it goes through this process. Um, and it's painful, but it's normal, right? And so, so it's easy to let our fears of rejection, you know, drive our actions. Uh, and that's a mistake because your work is fantastic and it needs to get out there. Um, so we need to find ways to push through that, through that fear. Um, another reason, of course, for, uh, um, thinking your work isn't good enough is this, uh, you know, imposter syndrome. Um, you know, I see this uh, in 100% more or less of our graduate students. New PhD students, new master's students, they want to become experts in, you know, international affairs, international security, all these sorts of things in our program. Um, and when they come in, they're just, they've just finished undergrad, typically, you know, or maybe they've been working for a couple years. Um, they don't, they don't feel authorized to opine about international affairs. We'll be in class and I'll ask them for opinion about, you know, the rise of China or, you know, what do you think we should do about Russia? And they'd be like, don't ask me, who am I, right? It takes, it takes a while to start feeling like someone who is authorized to speak about important matters. In the very same way, it's very difficult for people to feel like anyone wants to read their novel or their play or their poetry. Who the heck are you? You're not a published author. Why should anyone read what you, unimportant, nobody knows you, has to say, right? This is where we all start. We all start as an imposter because we aren't one yet in a, in a certain sense, but that doesn't mean we aren't uh, perfectly able to write and don't have things to say, right? Imposter syndrome is just how you feel. It's not the reality, right? Uh, and then the last sort of, I think, important uh, cause of, of thinking your work isn't good enough is sort of a, a related but not the same, and that's just perfectionism. Um, and again, I because I'm in a university setting with a bunch of A students, uh, in grad school especially, I see perfectionism everywhere, have some of it myself. Um, and you know, typically your A students want to sit on their papers until they are so good that there is no possible criticism uh, of those papers. And, and they're not comfortable showing you anything other than something that's perfect. Um, and that's a terrible strategy for life, uh, but it is fully understandable when you realize um, that many of us have this perfectionism streak. I think it's an insecurity about being judged, uh, undoubtedly. And so we're trying our best to hide any sign that we have any you know, um, cracks in our armor or in our arguments or in our prose. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to sh be our best, best possible selves. And you know, on one hand, you want to do good work, of course, but there's sort of a you know, uh, decreasing marginal returns to your effort at some point, right? Um, in graduate school, um, one of our uh, friends, my wife and I's friends, made a great point about why, why it is sometimes you write a paper at the last minute and you, you get a good grade. And she made the fantastic point that when you sit down to write most papers, especially like for college or, or even grad school, you, you come up with 
of the substance of the argument in about two minutes. <laughs> like that part is usually pretty quick. And the, getting to the last bit of, of quality takes a lot longer, um, but, but, but most, of it, most of that you got pretty quick. And so, you know, that's a pretty good summary of how, how it goes, right? Writing your first draft gets you 80%, revising gets you the last 20. Revising it three, four, and five times, isn't, I don't, is that gonna even get you one more percent? I don't, I don't think so, but so many people do. Um, I can tell you, I, I estimated that I probably rewrote each section of my dissertation, per, I'm not gonna lie, about nine times before I was happy to let my advisor see it. I was at least six too many. <laughs> Even though I wasn't a great writer at the time and I was new to the game, I'm, it's at least six times too many. I should have sent them this stuff m much earlier. So how to, how to overcome sort of some of these uh, finishing sort of challenges if you're afraid that your stuff is just not ready for prime time, it's just not good enough. Um, so I think the first thing, one good strategy, is to sort of combat imposter syndrome by developing your identity as a writer. Um, so when, when my students come to the PhD program, I, I tell them, look, you're gonna feel like an imposter for a while. It's gonna take you a while to feel like a political scientist, to feel like an expert on international affairs. And that's okay, but here's what you can do to sort of ensure that you get there and to kind of speed up the time. Right? And that's to basically take every opportunity to do the things that an international affairs expert would do. So you come to class, you talk about the issues with your friends, you do all the readings, you do all the writing, you take opportunities to write conference papers and to go to conferences and interact with other experts. Um, you go out and get coffee with mentors, right? You, you do the job. And in writing in general, I don't think there's any other way around it, right? If you, if you wanna feel authorized to write, you need to be a writer. So how do you be a writer? Well, number one, you write, right? Number two, you join writing groups. You engage the writing community online, through forums, right? You go to meetings, you go to conferences, you go see authors talk, you talk with authors about their writing, about the craft, and you get better at your craft, right? And, and over time, you're, you're gonna start feeling like a writer because you know what? You are, right? Um, the second thing is to, to beat back the fears of, of your work not being good enough and to combat your perfectionism is to share the mess uh, early and often. And there's a good uh, line in the startup world uh, that says, uh, fail early and fail often. And I think that is the best possible uh, you know, advice for writers. Um, so let me, let me give you the example again from, from my world and I think you'll, you'll be able to see what I mean. So on the one hand, here's the perfectionism approach that I do not recommend. I had a student, he was a very, uh, he, he did not come from a, a, a real strong academic background, which is weird for a PhD student. He was a military guy and so he knew a lot of stuff, but he wasn't a, sort of a social scientist uh, by, by nature. And so he was very uncomfortable with the uh, thesis topic uh, and dissertation proposal phase. And so he, he, we, we had a conversation about a topic and he wasn't happy and he went away and I didn't hear from him for six months. Six months later, I get an email. Hey Trevor, uh, I have a new dissertation proposal attached. Tell me what you think. It's a 40 page document and it was garbage. 
I read the first page and I knew it was an undoable project that he could never do and wouldn't be a good project the way he had thought it out. But he spent six months and wrote 40 pages with footnotes and all this stuff. And I said, I, I was so, I was shattered because I had to email him back and say, man, if you had just emailed me a paragraph, a paragraph summary of this topic, I could have told you no, and you could have moved on. And yet, you, what'd you do? Like, no, do the opposite of that, man. Send me the paragraph. And so, so now let me flip to the, to the other example, because I've had a student who do it essentially the opposite of that. I had another student who wrote me nine dissertation proposals. And that sounds like a lot, except they were all like three pages long. And so he wrote me one and I gave him some feedback. I said, I don't know, it sounds okay. You might hear some other things to think about. And he's like, okay. And he sent me another one a month later, different topic, related, but a different topic. And I'm like, oh, well that, well, that one's interesting too. Here's some more thoughts about that one. And by like the third or fourth one, he stopped sort of changing topics. And then he started iterating and improving in response to comments from me and the other committee members. And instead of writing 40 pages at a time, and what do you think about this, and what do you think about that, he, he just kept iterating the design for the dissertation and the methods and the data that he would collect and the questions exactly how he would ask them. And each time it got better and better and better. And by like the ninth one, he was ready to say, this is the one I want to do, do you agree? And we were like several past saying, yep, we, we like it too. Um, you know, we would have let you do number six, seven, or eight, but you know what? Yes, number nine is the best one you've done so far. And the thing that's magic about this, th th so many things are great about this. Number one, he never was afraid of the criticism because, right, so even though you're uncomfortable, you're, you're most uncomfortable sharing early on before you have an answer, before you're perfect. The fact is when you share a paragraph, you're not really sharing much. You're sharing a paragraph. If someone doesn't like it, it's not like they criticized the whole dissertation. They were just criticizing a paragraph and not you just saying, well, that's not going to work. Right. And here's why. Right. So and then the other great thing about it is how quick it is. Right. So you can come up with a paragraph about a new book that you might write and I can respond to it and we can trade that back and forth in like, you know, 20 minutes. Right. And within 20 minutes, you now can hear me say, I think that's a cool idea. Wow. And what if you did this and this? And you take that and you go, OK. And your confidence very quickly in just 20 minutes, your confidence goes from, I don't know if I have a good idea at all to, hey, Trevor likes my idea, right? Then you build a little bit more on that and you send it back, right? And I go, wow, that's really great. Now, here's the other thing that's great about sharing early is if you send me a full manuscript, right? A 450 page novel and you say, hey, what do you think, right? I'm going to have trouble helping in a sense, right? Because I, I'm only gonna be able to put a fingerprint on that. Uh, it's gonna be hard, like just socially even, for me to say, your main character is horrible, you have to change the whole thing, right? Or it's all in the present tense, it doesn't work, you need to change it all to the past tense. Or, you know, vampires, those are so done, no one reads about vampires anymore, or whatever it might be, right? I'm asking you then to undo a whole, like a year, two years of work, right? And you're staring, any criticism, is of your baby by that point. You are gonna be thin-skinned, you're not gonna listen, you don't wanna hear criticism at that point. You just want people to pat you on the back and say you did a great job, which they probably will do. Then you'll send it to an editor who is perfectly willing to say this is garbage, shoot it in the head, or just not respond to you, which is the most common. Though the best thing about sharing early is that's when people can help you. When it's a small putty of clay, right, or a small 
the pile of clay, right? Small lump, that's the word I'm looking for. And they can help, right? You can use their input to make it a lot better early. You get the design right, and then you build with confidence that next layer and the next layer. And let me say that if you can build that way through constant feedback and critique, you will be confident of the whole thing as it grows. And by the time you finish, you won't be, you won't be worried about any of it because you'll have gotten feedback on all of it. That is, that is a project you will walk into a war with because you're like, you know what? I know everything about this. I know everything that people think about this thing, man. I'm confident in what this is like, right? Because you've gotten all that feedback and you're not afraid of people thinking it's terrible. You're not afraid of the rejection anymore because you've gotten all the criticisms out of the way bit by bit, right? Not a poisonous level, but a, a doable amount. So I really think that sharing the mess and failing early and often, right, will help you build your confidence in your work and you, you will be unassailable by the, time, by the time you're done. And then one more strategy is if you're really worried your work is, is, is not so good and you have these perfectionism uh, issues, you need to create hard deadlines, right? Submit to a contest, promise your writing group, promise an editor, whoever it might be, uh, because in some cases we just need to be done and you need to put the pencil down and that's enough. And so, you know, I also think most of us, uh, love, you know, can benefit from the extra external validation and, and motivation of a, of a deadline, especially a deadline of someone we're embarrassed if we don't hit it, uh, you know, like a contest or an editor or a writing buddy or whoever it is. Um, so, so creating a deadline can help us, right? I don't have 100 days to make this better. I only have 10 days to make this better. So you do what you can in 10 days, but then, right, then you have to let your perfectionism go because you have to turn it in, right? And that can help us because then you're going to get feedback. And, you know, as I heard an older scholar once say many years ago, he's like, my strategy was, I, I, I was never really sure how good my stuff was, but at some point I figured, you know what, I'm going to let the reviewers tell me what's wrong with it right? It's not your job to say everything that's wrong with your writing. You know, that is in fact the job for the reviewers. Let your audience, right? Share it with your audience, the people you want to read it. Share it with them. Share it with your writing group. Share it with editors. Share it with contest folks. Uh, let them help you uh, figure out what's wrong, right? Think of yourself as the, the shepherd of the ideas in your book or in your work, not just the originator and with sole responsibility for the, for the quality. I think that can help a lot. Okay, and then the last but not least, uh, I think, fear that many of us have that keeps us from finishing things is a, a fear of what's next. Um, and I think, you know, th this can be sort of several flavors. Um, you know, certainly the fear of rejection or failure or nobody's going to read it, right? And, and is sort of related to what we were just talking about. I mean, I think, you know, uh, sometimes it's hard to hit send when you're not sure if anyone's going to read the thing or buy the thing or what's going to happen. Um, that can certainly be a problem. Another um, sort of the flip side of that, though, is uh, we could be afraid of success. And that always sounds weird. And some people think that doesn't really have any real meaning. Who the heck's afraid of success? But I, I will argue all day long. That's a very real thing. Because what happens when you publish a book is that people then expect things of you. Um, they expect you to write another book and it's got to be just as good as the first book. And we all know how many second books suck, right? So it's like, oh my God, I have to, I have to, I have to have a sophomore slump now that I had a first book. Oh no, right? And so other books, right? Some books you write in the nonfiction realm or if you start a newsletter or if you start a blog with a coaching business, right? People are now going to expect you to follow through. They're going to want what's next from you. And 
you know, you maybe you don't know what that is net now. So you're you're worried about what the new expectations and demands are going to be of your success if things are great, right? So so it's almost like, oh my gosh, I, I don't win if I win, I don't win if I lose. Oh no, right? So I think a lot of people get stuck, and and sometimes I see people slow down because I, they're not maybe ready to to find out which door they're going through. Um, and I think that brings up sort of the broader reason why we sometimes don't finish, and that's. It really could be just boiled down to a fear of the unknown, the fear of what's next, just generally. Um, you know, like I, I see this a lot in, in grad school students, of course, um, because, you know, these on average it takes people like eight years to get a PhD. So like by the time people are done, they are very comfortable in grad school. They are very comfortable in that milieu. They've figured out the rules. They're excelling, right? They've passed their exams. They have navigated the dissertation process. They're partway through. But then at a certain point, about halfway through their dissertations, right, they, they know what they're writing, they've been approved to write it, they've, they've gotten a bunch of progress. It's kind of just how long till they're done now, right? And a lot of them will slow down right at that point. And I mentioned before that sometimes they'll start writing conference papers in the middle of their dissertation. I'm like, what are you doing? But what's happening is some of them are turning into what one of my friends used to call gradual students. Um, they see the end coming, and they're afraid of what's next. They don't know if they're gonna get a job. They don't know if they do get a job, if they're gonna be good at that job. If I have a PhD, it means I have to be an expert. People will now expect me to be a different kind of a person than I feel. I don't know if I'm ready for that. And I'm really good at this. I don't know if I'm gonna be really good at that. And you know, man, I mean, that can just be scary. And so I think for a lot of us, the last sort of challenge is to, is to figure out you know, how do I get over my fear of, of what's next? And, you know, I think, again, there's no one answer here, but I think there might be a, a, a range of possible options for you, right? And I think, you know, first of all, I think if, you're, if your writing is aligned with your vision, right? If your writing is aligned with your deeply sort of held, you know, values and identity, and, you know, it's pointing in the direction you want to go, your fear isn't going to get in your way too much because you really, really want to go there. And so, you know, it, it's, it really behooves all of us, in my opinion, to have a strong sense, to develop a strong sense of where we're trying to get. Um, you know, for me, I did not happen to fear finishing my dissertation. I mean, I won't say I wasn't nervous, but I didn't let that fear slow me down because I was desperate to become a professor. I was so excited by this idea, and the idea that it was getting close was really exciting for me. Right? If I hadn't had that, though, um, and I wasn't sure what I might be doing next, or I, you know, then I, I could see that the fear might have slowed, slowed me down then. So I think one of the first things to do is to make sure you're actually pointed in the direction that, you're, that your soul is carrying you, right? Because that's gonna carry you through uh, this kind of obstacle. Um, a second thing I think can be really valuable is to talk to people who have been there, people who are there, people who are doing what it is you think you want to do or what's next for you if you finish your book, your dissertation, your thesis, whatever it might be. Um, because again, that can take the fear of the unknown out of the equation. It can demystify what's next. and Because we're always more scared of things we don't know about than we are when we can figure out what size they are and what they smell like and here's some strategies that people use. And and if you, you know, talk to professors, they'll be happy to demystify what it looks and feels like to be a professor for you so you don't worry so much. And I. 
you know, people in general are pretty friendly in life. If you shoot them an email and say, hey, I really love your podcast. I really love your blog. Your books are wonderful, whatever. And, you know, could we, could I buy you a coffee and we could spend, you know, 10 minutes chatting about how you do your thing or, you know, you'll find people to talk to who are in the place that you want to be that you can learn from. And again, conferences, writing groups, different places to learn. There are lots of ways to find out about that next phase that you're going to be in soon that can help sort of reduce the fear to a more reasonable level. Um, the, the third thing I think is um, to remember that you are prepared, in fact, for that next stage. Uh, you might not always feel it, but, but everything you've done up through the point of publishing whatever it is or finishing whatever it is you're about to finish is the preparation. Uh, our kids always used to be scared of the next grade in elementary school because, you know, if you were a second grader and all of a sudden it's your first day of third grade, right? Your memory of third graders was they were all bigger than you and they knew stuff you didn't and oh, they know long division or, you know, they know cursive and I don't, I don't know if I can ever learn that stuff. Like, I went, you know, mom, am I going to be able to handle that? And like, I still remember one of our kids saying that. And, and she, she just had the best answer to that. She was like, honey, you, you killed second grade, man. You did, you did second grade, didn't you? And everything was fine and you, you did everything that they asked you to do. And she said, honey, that's what second grade was for. Sec second grade was for preparing you for third grade. The fact that you finished second grade means you're ready. You're ready for third grade. And, you know, I don't mean to, to make a juvenile um, example here, but the point is, is that if you finished the book, you're ready to talk about the book. You're ready to be an expert about whatever's in the book. You're, re right? you're ready to tell people what to think about X, Y, and Z if that's the book you wrote, and so on. You're, you're ready to be a published author if you wrote a publishable novel, right? So it, does that mean you're going to handle everything in the future with aplomb and grace and it's all going to go great? <laughs> of course not. Who did that? There's nobody gets that promise. But the point is you're as prepared as any reasonable human can be for that next phase because you've done the work to get you to this point. And so I think having some confidence that you've, you've, you've gotten this far and that's going to keep... You put one foot in front of the other, uh, or as Dory used to say, just keep swimming, right? You, you'll get there. Um, and then the last thing I think, I'll borrow from my grandmother here, um, is um, don't borrow trouble, right? Uh, or maybe as the Buddhists say, feed, feed the right tiger. Um, there's two tigers. You could feed the, the positive, optimistic tiger, or you could feed the negative, cynical, uh, worst case scenario tiger. Um, and I think spending some time envisioning that future that you're trying to build for yourself, you know, and again, we're not all in charge of the future. That would be uh, too much to say, but you're a part of shaping it. And we can definitely affect uh, our futures in a positive or a negative direction, depending on our attitudes, depending on the kind of energy we're putting out there. Um, you know, not to get all rocks and crystals, but like, you know, if you spend time thinking about the future that you want and the things you need to do to have it be like that, and the more time you spend focused on those things, the positive steps you can take towards the world you want to be living in, the more likely you are to get there. And even if it doesn't do any extra, you know, good to get you there, it does prevent you from worst case scenarioizing, from feeling depressed about things. You're not borrowing trouble. And so envisioning a positive outcome from the things you're doing uh, to me is the best strategy uh, any day of the week over, over imagining things that you really don't want to happen because that's just not very much fun. All right, I've taken up more than the usual amount of time. Um, I hope that all your projects get finished and I look forward to talking to you guys about it in the comments. Uh, until we talk again, happy writing.